Okay. So, basically today, then, we're going to be talking about the Eightfold Noble Path and how it is actually different from the Eightfold uh, eight Path of Buddhism. Hang on a second. I think... I see the fish. Oh, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so, um, in fact, the Eightfold Noble Path is broken into three groups, but the three, there are several different versions of the groups of three. Yes. The one that starts it off is the one that goes Sila Samati Panya. And what that means basically is with the de development of Sila, or let us say mindfulness of bodily activities, then leads to purification of mind. And then the purification of mind will lead to purification uh, uh, of view and that purification of view then is the budding of the uh, noble right view and it is also this is the Pali word of Panya so Sila Samati Panya is the way that it's taught and practiced in the beginning until we get rearranged okay now, the more classical or formal way of looking at it is that it's Sila, uh, excuse me, it's Panya Sila Samati, where um, the Panya comes first, and then through uh, right uh, action and speech, we arrive to Samati in that way. But the way that we're practicing it is, is that we're starting uh, understanding with wisdom to begin with and using the other parts of the Eightfold and Noble Path that are associated with Samadhi, bringing about Samadhi in, the, in that noble way of the unification of mind, leaving then Sila as the result or the afterglow of having a mind that really is noble because a noble mind doesn't want anything. And so now the sila is instead of a task for the student, it becomes uh, kind of the, um, not really the outcome, but it's presented that way. That the, so let's go back and start looking at, well, what do I mean by that? Because this, this key point is that noble, um, right noble samadhi which we're not defining as a concentrated mind but rather as a mind that's unified a unified mind and the unified mind let's talk about it in ways that would so, show that the mind was not unified in the sense that if you are full of doubt about the practice if you have doubts about how to do stuff, if you have practice about the Buddha, uh, uh, doubts about the Buddha or the practice or uh, any of that, and everyone should start with doubts. In fact, that's how you 
got started in the first place was because you doubted the way that you had been taught. So the yep. doubt stays until we fully, fully understand the path, which means that now the mind becomes unified because it's free from doubt. Doubt will pull it this direction, that direction, and the other thing. But let's look at it then from the, from the position of uh, Sila uh, in the sense of that if your mind is unified, then you're not going to be going around harming people or killing people. You're not likely to get in your car and go to the store and shop with. <laughs> Unlikely to happen. Why? Because the mind is now unified. It's now uh, free from desire. It's free from, from wanting things. It's satisfied now. And that satisfaction of the mind then is what gives them the foundation of why our behavior becomes noble. It's not just that we're practicing the precepts. Practicing the precepts does not make one noble. It's the noble mind then that lends nobility to the action. Yes, it makes okay. a very good yeah. sense. Okay. Um, and so in the Buddhist world, they, they talk about it and tell the students that you have to avoid doing this and avoid doing that and, and all of this. Uh, because let us say that in a Buddhist society like Sri Lanka or Thailand, that young children don't have much wisdom. That's the whole problem is, is that if children were born old men and then learned uh, and as they uh, spent time on earth, they became young again, that would be a marvelous paradise. But unfortunately, it's all backwards somehow. When children are born, they're really, really dumb. They've got no experience. They don't know what to do. And so they create misery for themselves out of, uh, and so teaching them a set of rules is almost necessary when we're children. And England has that too, even though you can see that there's differences between uh, Sri Lanka and England, those basic same precepts are there and universal and worldwide. And not only that, but most legal systems are built upon those same kind of precepts. You can see it in the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, we're in that regard, we're training children, but we're just trying to get them out of what you would call chaos or wrong view. And so going back to what is noble right view and how we get this thing started is wrong view then is the view that I can get away with anything. Or my actions have no consequences at all. Uh, one of the old... Um, let us say gurus in the time of the Buddha actually taught in the way that he could go on the other side of the Ganges and kill 500 cattle. And then he could come back over to Varanasi and kill 500 cattle and there would be no repercussions. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. Not only do you have 500 dead cattle you've got to deal with, You've got a whole bunch of farmers that are really pissed off that you killed their cattle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so in that kind of regard, comma is real. We do have to be responsible for our actions. 
And so uh, we automatically then understanding wrong view as wrong view means that um, we are responsible for our actions. But then ordinary right view kind of takes it too far because many kids can see that they, in fact, can get away with it. Some of them are quite skilled at it. When you become really skilled at getting away with it, you can become president of the United States, no less. <laughs> and so getting away with it seems pretty clear. And so how then do you teach the kids that issue? The answer is now we've got to lie to them. We got to talk them into believing something. And basically what we're telling the kids is that if you do good, you will get good results. And if you do bad, you will get caught. You may think you can get away with it for a little while, but you will get caught for what you do wrong that harms people. Then we had to, uh, to add the line, and if you die first, the comma machine is going to dig you up just to kick your ass. And so that's when it goes into magical world. This is what gives us ordinary society is adding a level of, of magic to the original right intention that you have to learn to live your life in a responsible way. And so we teach the kids Sila. Some of them don't believe it. So now we have to add this magical component. You will get caught. You cannot get away with it. But that leads into a lot of delusion because it actually puts a time frame on it. Actually, a better way of talking about it would be instead of you will eventually get caught. The question is, look at what you're feeling right now. Do you really feel good about all of the bad behavior? Because that's really what's going on here now. And so this ordinary right view is what our societies are built upon. If we pile on enough laws and enough rules to close all the loopholes, we will eventually jail all the crooks. And look, the United States right now has more people in jail than any other country by population, and it's not doing them any good. Mm-hmm. So trying to make laws to operate under this this umbrella or the law of comma means that basically the only way that it could be done is by people seeing clearly with their own mind what is right and what is wrong and let them decide for themselves. But that requires in a society that, that um, is populated by adults and a whole lot of people never quite grow up. They always remain kids thinking that they can get away with it and mm-hmm. never have that full understanding. No, you, you can't get away with it. In fact, the wanting to get away from it is a, is a method or wanting to get away with it is, a, is just an expression of already feeling bad. It's almost like what, what comes first, the result of our bad action or the bad action itself. Because sometimes we experience the result of the bad action before we've actually done the bad action. How is that possible? 
the kid who's shoplifting in the store hasn't walked out of the store yet, so he actually hasn't stolen the goods in his pocket, but look how freaked out he is. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> so he's getting the results of his karma before he actually pulls the wrong action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a little bit more complicated than, than we think. Here's another example of that, and that is is that you buy stock on the stock market, and then the stock goes up. Was that a good purchase? Was that a good transaction? Well, yeah, in there, right? If you buy the stock and the stock goes down, now was that stock a good purchase? Was that action okay? Now we've come to, uh, to see there's a flaw in this ointment because in, in many, many ways, the outcome is, uh, determines the value of the original action. So if it's a good outcome, it must have been a good action. And if it's a bad outcome, then it must have been a bad action. Well, no, wait a minute, that just twists this law of common that the Hindus have put together all out of kilter. <laughs> but then there's another one that gets it really complex, and that is out on the sports field, you have a stadium full of fans, and uh, the penalty flag goes out. The, the guy blows the whistle, he throws the flag. It doesn't even matter what sport. They do this in every one of them, mm-hmm. whether it's basketball or football or uh, soccer or whatever. And half the stands stand up in the stand, throw their arms in the air and cheer. The other half of the fans on the other side of the stadium probably throw their hands <laughs> up in the air and growl in pain. All right? So was that flag now that's thrown, was that a good action or a bad action? <laughs> Makes you think, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Why did that's the whole point of me talking to you about this? Mm. Is this law of karma needs to be investigated? Mm. Because what I've just demonstrated is the uh, the Buddha's third kind of karma, and that is both good and bad, or bright and dark action gives a bright and dark result. Okay, I've never heard that before. Uh, it's in Sutta number 57, among other places. I've got four or five references of where the Buddha talks about the kinds of karma. Okay. Uh, and uh, so in this regard, ordinary right view is based upon uh, shifting sands of good action and bad action, what's right and what's wrong. And getting away with it, that means that we inherently know what's wrong, but we don't really. Not when it comes to something as important as a law of karma, which states that good actions give good results and bad action gives bad results, because most actions don't fit into that classification. But most actions fit into the mixed category, or the undefined, depending upon the outcome. And so... Uh, when we understand ordinary right view as ordinary right view, then you can see that it's got a promise built into it. It's got the promise of result. So that if you um, do a good action, then you are promised somehow that you're going to get the, the good result of that good action. 
And if you do a bad action, then you're promised that you're going to get a bad result. But the Buddha was putting that much more in the context of cause-effect. If I load a gun, put the gun to my head, and pull the trigger, that would be a bad action. And the bad result is my brains are all over the wall. But that's immediate. Eating poison, getting sick and dying, that's pretty quick. Or being really hungry and eating a meal and feeling really better would be another example of a good action giving a good result. Now let's think about it from Sri Lanka's point of view. How about building that new temple? The big shot in town builds a new temple. What is the benefit that he gets out of building that new temple? Is he going to get a heavenly state after he dies? That's what they promise. But in fact, no, he gets his heavenly state immediately after. Look at me. I'm the big dude that built this temple. I'm the big guy on this spot. (laughs) And that's his reward. The feelings that he has immediately. Mm -hmm. And they may last throughout his life, but when he's dead, who knows what's going to happen after that. But we teach our children trying to get them to behave good, and we wind up having a whole generation in magical thinking. Uh, And that kind of magical thinking then generally winds one up in one of the woeful states. And the one that I was just mentioning was the dumb animal. Okay, every human is trained to be a dumb animal, and we are trained that way by our parents, by our primary school teachers, by everybody. Here's how that happens. You tell the kid, go clean your room. And the kid says, why? And the answer is, because I told you to go clean it up. And so now we're treating that child like a dumb animal. In other words, we're not explaining it. And a more useful thing, and in fact, uh, when I was telling this to one of the uh, uh, the students, um, we began to talk about his own son because he's actually done that with his own kid. Mm-hmm. Go clean your room. Why? Because I want it clean. But we po- talked about the fact that, well, maybe the kid would also like the room clean, but he's going to be in this state of rebellion because he's told to go clean it up. But if dad wants the room clean and the kid wants the room clean, then why can't they go together and make a game out of it? Maybe holding the bag of toys while the kid throws the toys from across the room like they were playing basketball. And now we can make a little game out of it. But we don't do that with our kids. What we do instead is you do what I told you to do. When I was in India, one of the things that really struck me, this was actually quite common, but I remember one in particular, a donkey that was around a treadmill about a 30-foot radius, he had a log on his back or a young tree that they'd cut down, and the center of it was on a millstone. Mm-hmm. And this guy was putting the sugarcane stalks into this millstone, and out would be dribbling sugarcane juice. Now, I'll ask you a question. Do you think that donkey got ever any sugarcane juice? No. Don't get the value. 
So this is basically what happens then with that ordinary right view is we are promised that we're going to get something to our good work and it never happens. We don't get the reward. Here's a here's an interesting example. Go to first grade and you'll learn a whole lot. And then you can get to go to second grade. And then then you get through primary school and you go to middle school. And now you got to go to high school and you get a degree in college and then you get a job and then you get a big house. And about the age of 40, the guy's beginning to figure out, wait a minute, this whole thing sucked. It was always a promise to make the next step. And I've never really gotten anything. I don't feel happy and joyful and satisfied with my life. My life is a drudgery. And so he knows exactly what to do. He goes to the Harley Davidson or the motorcycle dealership and, and, and buys his um, what they call midlife crisis toy. So that whole idea of the midlife crisis is because the crisis comes when the wake up comes. I have been wasting my whole life. Mm-hmm. Why have I been wasting my whole life? Because I did what I was told to do mm, precisely ah and guess what our society has a job for everyone to do they, mm. this society tells everyone what they've got to do even the most rich people still they are stuck in this society and their their job is to be really greedy <laughs> but, they're not, <laughs> but they're not very happy. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, that's 100% true. Yep. But then okay. they buy more toys and are temporarily satisfied, but then they have to do it again and again and again. Exactly. All right, so now we have wrong view that is chaotic, destructive, and downright dangerous and pitiful back to the jungle. Or we have this constructed society where people only suffer a little bit, but there is no one who gets out of suffering through that ordinary right view. That we have to do something new. And that something new is uh, basically to come out of these woeful states that are basically coming out of our, our, not just our childhood, but we develop these things in our childhood because we've got the basis of them through the old programming of our DNA back into uh, earlier and earlier civilizations. So that this kid is mistreated by his parents because that was the way his parents were trained. And so they were mistreated by their parents just back and back and back and back because we come out of ignorance. And every generation, we begin to treat our kids a little bit better and a little bit better. And now we've reached a point that the kids are beginning to rebel against the the religion because the kids now have been treated so well that they can see right through that lie and that they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that whole um, do as you're told to do eventually breaks down, not just for the individual, but for the society in general also. And it has something to do with education. When we begin to figure out that we have been mistreated by our, our uh, society, 
and all of the people in it when we were young. But then we made the mistake, too, of going along to get along. That herd instinct, to be part of the herd, to do what you're told to do, kind of hoping and expecting to get results that never come, never happen, or happen so rarely. And so um, this is where then the basis of the Buddhist teaching is this right, noble view. But it takes a while to practice so that we can get the mind clean enough. Okay, so one of my favorite suttas is sutta number 24. And one of the reasons that it's so favored is because it is ironclad, solid evidence that sutta number 48 is exactly the way that the Buddha taught. Because there's a parallel in both of these suttas. Um, And one of them, the number 24, it talks about uh, purification of virtue. Purification of virtue then leads to purification of mind. Purification of mind then leads to purification of view. Purification of view then leads to purification of doubt, because we can see now. Purification of doubt then leads to knowledge and vision of what is and is what is not the path. Now, this this five-step set that I give you is basically the bingo. This is it. In fact, there's two more steps in that, but this place of coming to the point of knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path means that this whole society that I've been living my life for is not the path. The path is something else. So getting back then to right to noble view, that is that stage when we purify the view. So we work with purification of sila, and behavior then and basically here's the thing that's interesting people when they talk and think about this stuff they think about it as a long period of time especially purification of virtue i mean both of you have been working on purification of virtue your whole lives and you're still not up to it and you know it (laughs) so if the way that that's true uh was actually true in the long-term sense then um Uh, enlightenment would be impossible now because no one can make that first step. And in fact, many Buddhist organizations, both in Thailand, in um, India and Sri Lanka and Burma, they practice it like that, that you've got to get these kids absolutely perfect in their behavior before we're going to take them into the meditation hall and teach them to sit down and squat on the floor. Okay, this is just a... But... There's a new way of thinking about it, and that is is that purification of sila in this particular moment is all that we need in order to go to the next step in this particular moment. You don't have to get it perfect for a long period of time before you start the next step. That it's actually bang, 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 purification of virtue, then purification of, uh, of the mind, and then purification of view. So what do we mean by then this kind of purification is all you have to do is get your mind into seclusion. 
get into the meditation hall or go into your favorite place, but you're secluded from others. If you're actually secluded from everybody else and you're not thinking about the world, you're secluded from the world, how could you misbehave according to the world? Your sila is at that moment perfect. You're not kicking anybody. You're not stealing anything. Your, your sila in that moment is perfect. And better still, you're generally not thinking about uh, stealing anything that you've got in your mind away from that because now we're practicing correctly. So the next step then is purification of the mind. And what we mean by that is what we've already been practicing, and that is getting the hindrances out or becoming secluded from that part of the world. The first thing is we become secluded from the real world. That's the purification of sila. And now we're purified from the mental world. That is the same world, by the way. And now we have purification of mind. And so this two-step process then fits precisely then in with sutta number 48 that I was mentioning before, because the first step on that path or uh, in that sutta it talks about it, the first knowledge, thusly, that when, first off, it, it gives a, a long paragraph about the hindrances and calls them obstructions in that particular translation. Then it's talking about it like this, that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, the student knows that he can clean that out and come back to this present moment. Okay. That's actually then the uh, uh, that step two in uh, Sutta number 24 is the full on step one of uh, the Sutta in 48. So this is the first knowledge that's actually noble. It is noble, it's transcendent, it's super mundane, and it's not a factor of ordinary life. In fact, it's a factor of the path. Let me state it again. No matter how obstructed the mind gets, the student knows that he can, in fact, throw that stuff out and bring the mind to uh, be here now, to see things as they really are in this present moment. That's noble. Most people are victims. This is, in fact, the winner's attitude. He knows he can do it. This is Shraddha. This is that first knowledge, the knowledge that I know I can do that. If I'm sick, it doesn't matter. I can still feel good mentally. Just because the body's sick doesn't mean the mind's got to be sick too. And yet most of the time when the body gets sick, it's, oh, poor me, I can't do this and that. And, you know, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. But in this case, no, it doesn't matter what the body is doing. We can, in fact, be in a good state. We don't have to be in a miserable state. All we have to do is remember to do this practicing sequence. Okay. And so once we get good at it, then that being good at it is what we would refer to as the first jhana in the sense that we know that we can do it and we're doing it all the time. We got a good handle on this. And we also know now beyond a shadow of a doubt that in fact, this practice that we're doing works. Now we're coming to that third point in Sutta number 24, the knowledge and vision that this is the path. 
that this is the path and all that other stuff is not the path. All right, this is the break. This is the breaking point of our breaking into the noble view. This is the this is when it becomes really noble. And this is step three then of Sutta number forty-eight, and step five of the uh, number twenty-four, which is the knowledge and vision that this path is the only thing that works. This is the path that I'm on now. That I know that Christianity doesn't work. I know that psychology doesn't work. I know that frontal lobotomies just don't work. I know that pills don't work. But this practice that the Buddha has set out, I know it works because I've been on it long enough to see that it really does. And in fact, that's how you guys call me today. It was, wow, it works. <laughs> wow, this stuff is working. And so... This is that change then from that ordinary uh, right view into the noble right view. And that right view then is now based upon the wisdom of the path. And it is primarily investigation oriented. Rather than uh, the way that we had been doing ordinary right, our ordinary right view was by seeing something and coming to a conclusion. This is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this action is good, et cetera. Right now, we're at a more noble state, which means that all action is not judged, it's merely observed. And we don't bother to come to conclusions. And if we do come to conclusion, guess what? It's going to be caught wrong. So be beware of any conclusions you come to because you might have to <laughs> have to eat it. <laughs> and so this is a, mo a most major quality of this right noble view is that uh, is based upon keep looking, keep noticing. And in that process, we begin to get a broader view, a more noble view, an expansive view. You could almost go so far as to say that one's right noble view is actually compassion. It's another way of looking at compassion. Because when we're compassionate, that means that we can see the suffering of others, really see it, possibly even better than they can. But yet, we don't have to suffer along with them. But we can take action to help them out of their suffering. Remember, this is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. This is the end of suffering. So if we're in a state of compassion for someone, it almost by the definition of duty to the Dhamma is to give them a little nudge of comfort or something. And so in that regard, one's noble view becomes quite really noble in real ways, in, in the ways of compassion. But this kind of noble view is developed over time when we add these other factors in. And the first one that we're adding in then is sati, because we remember to have that right view. We remember to have the right view over and over and over again. And so as we're developing sati and remembering more and more often, that also helps develop that right noble view. So with right noble view and right sati, we add the third ingredient, which is right uh, effort. 
the effort of taking the breath, the effort of gladdening the mind, all of this stuff that we've talked about. And so you can see this stuff all fits together. And when we have a right uh, view, right noble view and right effort and right sati together, that's what when it begins to work and we can see it and our confidence grows, so does our attitude. Our attitude really begins to change from the attitude of a loser, oh, this is hard, into the attitude of a winner. I've got this one. I've got it. In, in the, uh, the joking kind of way, it's like, oh, a breath, oh, my beer. <laughs> You've heard that expression, that yeah. when a challenge comes by, you say, all right, oh, my beer. All right, well, this is a, let the guy keep your beer because we're going to do it. You know, hold this beer while I go and get her done. And so it's really that kind of winner's attitude. This together is what these four things are what when we work together in the path, that's what draws the mind into a state of unity. The mind becomes whole because we have that winner's mentality. We have a, a, a wide view of things uh, and that we have learned how to control our effort so that we become very quick with seeing how things are over and over again. Very easy to begin to wake up, to keep waking up. So this is kind of the wake up process of coming out of scattered mind, out of the dream world into this unification of mind. And that unification of mind is then the noble mind. So in that regard, we would say that this sila, samati, panya, or panya, uh, sila, samati, doesn't kind of work that way. That it's better to look at it in this sense as panya, samati, sila. So that sila winds up being the outcome to where in the ordinary mind, the not noble mind, that's where we start. So it all starts and winds up in sila. If that's true, then we could say, well, wait a minute. That means that the Buddha's whole teaching is a teaching in morality. And the answer is, you got it. It's a teaching in morality. And we start by giving the students rules. And then when their wisdom comes, we invite them to drop the very rules that we gave them. So that now the morality is based upon the noble mind rather than based upon a set of rules that they were given. And so that's kind of a delicate switch. It's got some problems. It's got some dangers to it. One of the dangers is, is that if the kids hear about the noble path too quickly, then instead of having any noble what they will do instead is they'll say, oh, I can get away with anything now. Mm -hmm. And so uh, moving out of right view, uh, no ordinary right view into noble right view is delicate because it's very easy to slip and fall back into wrong view. Then, in fact, I'm not talking about one individual in his whole life. He learns a little bit about noble right view, and now he's wrong view all the time. I'm talking about every one of us makes that slip up. Every one of us will fall into wrong view because we think we can get away with it. 
but it's worth the trip. It's worth that extra effort to avoid the wrong view so that we can uh, increasingly work towards gaining our right view. And so the eightfold, the eightfold path then is um, this kind, it's got that kind of value to it. That we become kind of dedicated to it. We begin to live our lives according to it. Uh, and part of that has to do because we just decided that there's nothing else. There's nothing really else that's going to work to give us the kind of good life that we're expecting to have for ourselves. And so um, as we progress that way, what, ha what happens is we become, with our right view, very, very cautious, suspicious, um, uh, wary of all of the ways that we cause suffering that we, we get uh, quite alert about that, that we also almost become dedicated to keep, keep looking for what is it that's going to pull me out of this nice state. And this is how uh, the, the student grows. Now, uh, in the suttas, this is what we're talking about now is actually then step four on sutta number 48. The step number four uh, is actually introducing the patty mark or the vinya into this process in the sense that if the young monk knows that he's done a transgression, that he knows he's done something wrong because he's got a list of rules here and that's basically what the monk, that's the shiva of the monk. Then when he recognizes that, he's to go and to confess to his teacher or to an elder friend, not one of his chums, but one of the senior monks. Uh, and this is actually what the Paddy Mork is all about. They, in many temples, they do it once a month, but most of them, they do it uh, once every two weeks okay. uh, on the full moon and the full moon. Excuse me. Uh -huh. All right. And so on, on this time during that day, before the, the night of the Paddy Mall, uh, the, the, the big monks will be out and about. They'll be easy to be found so that the younger monks can actually do the confession. Or you can do the confession as you're going into the, uh, the, the, the assembly. Um, this naturally has, has the danger of falling into an empty ritual. But the original one, and when the monks are actually with that kind of mind, that they're actually going to do, take this opportunity to get things off their chest. Uh, it has also the quality of, if I'm willing to admit my wrongdoings, to the, to the senior monk and get absolution for that, then that has also the quality that I'm kind of making a vow uh, or the determination, I'm going to not do that anymore. This is a big deal that I'm, that I'm letting out in the open. Now, most of the time, uh, in fact, it's quite common for humans 
when we've done something wrong to hide it. And so uh, basically we, we deal with things in two ways. Kitty, you're making a lot of noise. Will you guys go someplace else? This is not a good place for you to hang out, okay? You go in the house and giggle. Or go outside and giggle, okay? Thank you. I know you're here for the gecko, but the gecko is not going to come out while you girls are giggling. <laughs> All right. So, this fourth knowledge, the knowledge that uh, I'm in fact, uh, I'm on guard for my own uh, dukkha, but I'm not trying to get any way thing away from it. Be because the ordinary person, um, we're attached to our wrongdoing. It becomes an issue of selfishness. And it also has to do with punishment. That if I confess what I've done wrong, then I'll suffer. Our children are like that in the sense of the way that we treat them. If we can get them to confess, then we feel it's okay to punish them. And so the kids don't want to confess. As long as, and, and in fact, you can see that and even in torture situation. If you can handle the torture, you won't sign that confession. If you sign <laughs> that confession, now they're going to kill you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, we resist those confessions. It's um, um, uh, human nature for us to do that. And yet when we begin to have a noble mind, we recognize, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I don't want to suffer anymore. If I can throw that stuff out now, then I'll live clean in the future. And so we actually do now want honesty. We don't want to deny what we're doing wrong because to deny what we're doing wrong means we're doomed to do it again next time. But if we bring it out in the open and recognize what we've done wrong and share it with the senior monk, kitty, go, go, go. Didn't go. <laughs> Um, Kitty, get out of here, both of you, go. I told you already, go, get out. You go that way if you want to, she can go that way. I don't care if you're together, I just want you to stop making noise here. It's okay, you can go in there with her. So I told her about it that, you know, I explained to her why I wanted her not here. This is not, I mean, she, she's playing with me right now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she, she's showing off to her friend, basically, is what she's doing. Uh, they're five and uh, six and seven, rather. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> this is actually a very good example of what it we're talking about. Funny. <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> and, and I was like that. Uh, so um, 
getting back to what we were talking about, Ben, we become dedicated because we know the path to the end of suffering. We're actually becoming dedicated to practicing that path, which means we stop overlooking and ignoring our own suffering. We stop looking and ignoring what we're doing wrong, which causes suffering. Then we actually want to take a good, honest look at who we are and what we're doing. And um, that gives, gives us a kind of dedication. We, we become on guard even more and more. And this is when we really start putting the skills of sati into play, is we want to be there. We want to see what's going on. We become dedicated to the Dhamma. And so the step five of this uh, practice is that we are like a cow that has a calf. And that that calf, once we have that calf, then even though we're eating grass, we're keep, we keep an eye on that calf. We're mm. going to guard that calf to make sure that that calf is safe. In this regard now, that calf, that newborn calf that we're trying to protect, is our own new kind of mind, our noble mind. And we guard that calf, and we keep it safe, and we keep uh, de determined that we're not going to slide into the old way, the old personality. We're not going to slide back into doing what we've been doing before, that we've worked too hard and gotten something too valuable to just let it get thrown away. The next step, then, would be called, I like the word, eager are enthusiastic about the Dhamma because now that we're on guard for it with, uh, in the sense of the mother cow is, is that uh, we really begin to get the fruit. This is beginning of the delight. This is when we say like, ah, I've got something here. This is, this is really, really good stuff. And we become really enthusiastic about, about the Dhamma. We want to know it. We want to see it everywhere. Uh, everything looks like Dharma because everything actually is Dharma. But now we're seeing it because we're looking for it and we're looking for it because we're dedicated to and we know how. We've got the tools that we need. And so then the last part, number seven, the seventh knowledge is when it moves from eagerness into delight. Complete delight. It's like, ah, I've got it now. Okay. And so that the, uh, the delight actually has a quality of eagerness, but it's much more mellow. It's real satisfaction. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. That's okay. Um, so eager and delighted that everything becomes a delight, just like this episode that we had just now. That that was just ordinary, but it was delightful. Not mm -hmm. not angry or or anything. Just. Um, we become delighted with everything. And this is actually then the fruit of the path 
you probably heard me use the word before, and you may have heard it. The word in Pali is sotapan. Yes. Okay. The, uh, and it is referred to as the stream entry. Mm-hmm. Okay. What we have talked about today from step one of uh, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, that we can clean that out. That's the first step of sotapan. The Buddha says so right there in that passage. This is noble. Anyone who has gotten to the point that they know that they can clean the hindrances out of the mind, that's the first noble step. But that step, but that step then, as we improve, as the mind gets sharper and we really understand the Eightfold Noble Path and all the details of it, which we've got a lot of work to do here yet, I'm just kind of giving an overview. Then by having that uh, deep knowledge that this path is the one that works, then by practicing that path, we become dedicated to finding uh, dukkha. And so that's the kind of transition point. Up until then, we're only doing path. But now we're beginning to get the fruit of the path. What is the fruit of the path? The fruit of the path is actual elimination of dukkha because we're willing to see it we're willing to take a look at it and that we'd start that on the on the cat on the bent or on the floor when it's little but then we can begin to practice that throughout our lives that this is actually the way that we live is this way of the light and this is the fruit of the path of the soda pine it is everything becomes delightful so will that be like permanent for the Sotapanna? Um, will that be permanent for them, you know, once they reach that stage? That will, no. No, no, nothing is permanent. Okay. In fact, you, you, you could be nothing at all today. You can be um, uh, uh, full fruit tomorrow. You can be back to step oh, really? one again. Okay. And okay, wherever you are in the moment, Mm-hmm. But it does have the feeling of, of progress in the sense that you eventually reach states that you haven't before, like okay. dedication. Your dedication will grow. And as your dedication will grow, it doesn't mean that it's going to go steady, steady, steady like that. It's just it's kind of like any wave, you know, it's a sawtooth. Yeah, today is going to be better than it was yesterday, but mm-hmm. and tomorrow may be really crap. <laughs> but it doesn't matter what it is, I can get my mind out of it. Yeah. Yep. But over time you begin to spend more and more time in enthusiasm for the Dhamma and wanting to know. And wanted to know all of these details. I mean, you know, by listening to me, I've got just so many little details. Well, all of those details come from my enthusiasm for the Dhamma. I want to know. Curiosity. The good kind. Not the kind of curiosity that comes from doubt. Because doubt has the quality of um, danger. We're not sure. We don't know. We're confused like that. But when you add joy to confusion and uh, the, let us say, the winner's attitude, when you add that to confusion, what you have is thirst for knowledge. I got to know. I got to find out. I got to figure this stuff out. 
So that's where we are at that level of enthusiasm. Because I want to know. Got to find it. I've got it already. Okay. And then at that level, then it's an easy step then from enthusiasm into delight. Okay. I mean, I've noticed in my sittings, sorry, um, it's not just, you know, aha, I see you, but it's like you, you contemplate what it was, whether it was a, what sort of desire it was. It's only a brief sort of thing. And then and you don't go, you know, right into it either. You just like, just identify it a little bit and then you get a little burst of joy. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you, you don't, it doesn't come up all the time. Sometimes it's just attention or whatever. You can let that go or release that and be, you're aware of it. But sometimes you actually see something or you're just aware of something and then you take a little moment just to sort of see what it was in terms of mm-hmm. sort of desire, or angry desire or lustful desire or whatever. And then you, there's a small burst of energy or joy come out of that as well. Uh-huh. And you just move on again and... There is but, a... But I don't I want think to, it's, huh? um, okay. but, but, but like I said, I, you don't dwell on it and... So you know, try and don't try and stay with it. You just as soon as you just you just move on. There is a Mahayana phrase that fits this exactly, fits this perfectly, and that is note it well and let it pass. Note it well is that part where we say, "Aha, I see you, Mara." We're actually noting what that was. We take a look at it just briefly. But then we let it pass. We don't hang on to it or try to inspect it in close detail. But we do take a good look at it quickly and then let it pass. Note it well and let it pass. This has that the quality then of we're not going to get to know those that particular kind of hindrance until we revisit it and see it many times as it's coming up. So that, the let us say, the 19th time you've seen it, it's like, ha, 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 I've seen you before. <laughs> I know what you are. Okay. And so you get even a kind of a bigger burst. The more often you visit how the mind is, is doing these, these things, the more insight that you'll have into it so that you get even a bigger burst of joy when you, when you catch the mind doing stuff. This is, in fact, back to that point about uh, um, step number four. But in, the example is with doing it with a senior monk. But literally, you're doing it to, with yourself right there. Aha, I see you. Hmm? Yep. With yep. the dedication of, I'm going to be on watch for you. <laughs> well, that's the thing with twin. We were, this is, I think this is where we probably, I don't know if we misunderstood a step with twin, but you, you don't label anything. Or you don't, you don't, you're told not to dwell on it or just, just let it pass. Keep passing, 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 passing. Um, without paying attention. It, it, sometimes you, you've let it pass without paying attention to it. But sometimes, I don't know if that's a thing that's missing. I know you're not supposed to, I don't know if you're supposed to do Yes, there's an actually a teaching about that. Let me lay this one on you. Where the problem with the word noting, especially with the Mahasi method, does have that quality of labeling, especially when they start the labeling of rising, falling, touching, sitting, and then labeling more and more. The word noting doesn't necessarily have to be that strong. Right. So let me give you an example. 
with another word, and the word is uh, witness. There's two kinds of witnesses. There's the witness that saw the crime or the accident. He saw it. And then later, he is a witness on the witness stand telling a story about what he saw. Okay? So when we're noting, what that means is we're, we're watching the accident. And there's no need to tell a story about it. Right. That the telling of the story is that is the witnessing that has to do with labeling or spending too much time with it. Rather, just note it well and let it pass. If there's, I wouldn't call it labeling. You probably don't even have to go to the point of verbalizing. But I'll give you a few words that are verbalized just to give you an idea of, of, of what that would be. Um, sadness. We can recognize sadness. If it's fleeting, then that's good. If it's not, we may have to, in fact, start working a little while with the sadness while it's there. In other words, we're noting it only so long as it's there. But when it passes, now we can go do something else and that feelings generally are a lot slower than thoughts mm -hmm. and that feelings also have the quality of kind of sneaking up on you that they start small and then they get bigger and while it's getting bigger we may not notice it uh the the silly example is a, a frog in hot water you know you probably heard about this that if you take a frog and plop him in hot water, the, hard, the hotter that water is, then the quicker he's going to jump out. But if you put a, a frog in cold water where he's comfortable with it and then turn up the heat, he will actually mm. cook himself to death because he never figured out that things are getting a little hotter and a little hotter and a little hotter. And so that's basically how our feelings come up on us. But once we recognize them, then we can start dealing with them. So this talk about um, letting it pass is much more of a, a mental kind of thing. Uh, in this, not mental in all respects, because feelings are also mental, but really thinking that we have a particular, we've recognized, for instance, the mind has wandered away from the breath, and it's all thinking about something. Noting where it was thinking, is all you need to do, because now that's in fact, uh -huh, I see you. I see you, Myra. And when I say I see you, I'm not talking about something general. I'm talking about something very, very specific. Uh -huh, I see you writing that email. <laughs> or uh -huh, I see you complaining to the publisher or whatever it is in that email. Okay, so this is what we mean when it's, when it's very quick and we can catch it then that note, noting, and uh -huh, I see you, is actually the noting, and then we let it pass immediately. So you're not worried, you know, someone's writing the email, but you're not, you don't want them to know the contents of that email. I'm sorry, repeat that. So basically, you're, you're, you're being aware of the email being written, but you don't, mm -hmm. you don't want to dwell on it to know what's in the content of that email. Right, exactly. We want to throw that email out. Yeah. Okay. Okay, especially when we've got no computer there to write that email with. Okay, we're just yep. 
on yeah. about I'm arguing with somebody about something that happened. Okay, it basically, and and the email is the way that I would argue with them. And so, this is what we mean by that: is is that when we see that stuff, that's the noting of it, is the seeing it, not the description. When we note it, it's not that we're telling ourselves a story about it, but the noting is, ah, I see you, Myra. And then it will pass. Note it well and let it pass. So this is a, um, I know that it's a problem with words, but that is generally misunderstood by most Westerners because they do way too much of that noting in the sense of even telling themselves stories about it. Mm. Or buzzing at themselves for uh, getting caught at reading, writing that email. Mm. Because we're pretty hard on ourselves, too. So that's all hindrance. Why? Because being hard on ourselves, because we caught ourselves thinking about an email, that's not very joyful now, is it? (laughs) So that aha, I caught you, or aha, I see you, Myra, is actually the gladdening part to gladden things up, to let it pass. Noting it, well, aha, I see you, and then letting it pass because now we're back in the present moment. So remember that concept about the, the witness. You're not the witness on the stand. You're the witness who is seeing right. that accident. Yeah. At the moment. Yeah. You have any other questions? Do you, is it, cultivate that approach more rather than you know at the moment it's 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 sporadically that thing happens so if anything you know if if there's more subtle aha moments you can just let it go straight away or do you want just brief quick look and see what's there or on every single one as such some aha moments are bigger than others yep but in fact aha i see you is kind of an aha moment it may not be a very big one but sometimes it will be yep sometimes you'll see things and it's like a whole huge light bulb <laughs> goes off <You're> like, aha! <laughs> okay so yes those kind of insights will come but they but how big the insight is is not so important What's really important is that we become dedicated to the end of suffering. And sometimes the aha moments or the big insights rededicate that, or in fact, wow, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. That was a really dumb thing to do. I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay. So um, that's that kind of a dedication that we're going to not let the mind uh, do harm to ourselves or to others. There is, you know, even just in normal, because um, just day-to-day stuff, I mean, because my mom's mother's got uh, dementia, it's very difficult dealing with her because her moods can change and all sorts of things. Um, But it's, it's again, getting, rather than reacting, you stop, stop a moment, and then um, just let that whatever's there pass away, and then you just carry on again. And you know, it's, it's, you're not bothered by that uh, 
that that hindrance that arises what she's trying to you know play around with or mess around with you or whatever it, it becomes less okay here's about uh who was it your grandmother you said my, 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 my mother. mother your mom mother. okay yeah. first off um old age is like that for some people that some people do lose their mind and their body stays uh and that um basically when people lose their mind like that they lose that frontal cortex and that what will stay <clears throat> is that a more old resilient part of the brain uh and and uh the reptilian brain I mean, she, is yeah. what's keeping her alive yeah all yeah, yeah. of that all of that stuff is keeping her alive but it also is the source of her bad feelings now what i'm trying to get into you is is that this is not your fault or responsibility your job instead is to be joyful around her to invite her out of those moods that she naturally falls into so i would say become playful with her yeah, 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 no, yeah, we are, we are with that. Really, we're, we're, just, like a child. Yeah, we, we, we play with her like a child, exactly. I mean, we've been doing that for a for while, but, while. That, that, but there are days when it's very difficult. So, but no, those, there's, oh, there's only it. days when you don't want to do it. <laughs> and so you call those days difficult. Yeah. Or in fact, the day is not yeah. difficult. Yeah, yeah. You're making your own difficulty. So when you recognize that, you can yep. say, okay, that that's a hindrance that I can also throw out of the mind. That some days with mom are difficult. No, they're not. <laughs> I can mm, handle yeah, that too. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Get over that hindrance first. <laughs> I may not be able to control her behavior, but I can certainly control my own. I can be joyful even though she doesn't joy up. Mm. I can still be joyful. Even though she may stay grumpy, she really does enjoy you being joyful. She would much rather, even though she's not able to be joyful herself and is grumpy only, she doesn't want you to be grumpy too. Not to her. She's got enough grump already. <laughs> <laughs> and so I understand what you're saying. So look at those kind of times when you think that it's difficult because it's not really that's just more hindrance in your mind because you don't get what you want mm. what yes. you want is you want your cheer to cheer her up and it's not working right now oh poor me <laughs> <laughs> and what would Goenka say he would say never mind start again <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, start again. That, that whole quality of practice and persistence is really what this whole thing is about. And people are spotty at that. And when they're spotty at it, it takes a long time, sometimes years. But if you become dedicated within a short period of one or two years, and you can just completely change the way that you've been living into a way of living that you really like. And so stay with it. Your mother is a good uh, uh, 
test platform for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in uh, in in uh, uh, Shaolin and in Kung Fu, they have a um, a wooden stick man. Yeah, that yeah they, I'm done it. Okay, yeah. that's yeah. that's your that's your mom. She's a training tool for you. <laughs> Um, with with Willie, a couple of years ago, we started this because his uh, his whole family is, is uh, very traditional Chinese. So he's living in New York, uh, and that we began to call his dad the Zen Master because that gives uh, Willie the chance to wake up. That his father is a, a Zen Master when he's grumpy. That he's just the Zen stick going off. <laughs> and so uh, that that actually transforms Willie's relationship with his dad completely, and we still refer to him as the Zen master. And so you can think of it that way with with your mom that she's your guru. <laughs> okay. And that she's going to be testing your joy. Yeah, you know, definitely, 100%, 100%. <laughs> so, that's what I have to say today. And okay. uh, um, I expect you to uh, uh, pay great respect to your guru. That will do, will do. <laughs> Are we talking about you here? <laughs> no, not me. I'm not the guru. I'm just your buddy. I'm just your friend. <laughs> no, your mom's your guru. <laughs> but she's also a good one, you know, with the creeping up on each other. Or, you know, the, she does that to us. She, she can just, she's like a ninja. We call her like a ninja. She'll get up and disappear. You know, we, we don't like her walking upstairs on her own. Yeah. Um, and she just, she'll craftily go off somewhere just to, you know, the toilet or whatever downstairs and then sneak up. So you've already got it, right? So You're calling her the ninja. Exactly. Yeah, we, 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 yeah, for a long time, she's been, for years, she's been called the ninja. I'm surprised during these, during these sessions, she doesn't come, she doesn't come and, you know, into, normally she'll come into the room to see where we are but um you know uh, lately you know since we started this we actually she doesn't come in does she yeah the only thing we've noticed is she's um better behaved yeah i think so, she, she, so there's, there's, you know, she knows that reward as well she that, notices that your energy if it's bad she'll be bad if you're good she'll be good generally so there is that um and she's quite sensitive to that uh-huh uh, so yeah. if she's sensitive to you and you're sensitive to to it also, yeah. then she's going to be in in laughter as much of the time as you are. <laughs> Sometimes you know it, it is like that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, let's bring this talk to a close, and um, I'm, I I think that this has been some value to you to get yeah, started definitely. on the, the yeah. Eightfold Noble Path and how it fits into. Uh, the path in the sense of uh, the first step, how we take those first steps and wind up in uh, the delight. And the light in the Dhamma is the fruit of the Dhamma, that your life becomes delightful. Even when mom is not. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
<laughs> okay, guys. Well, we'll see you soon. Thank you. See you. See you. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All righty. Bye-bye.